0: Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. This morning we're going to be covering verses 17 through 25. Romans chapter 4, verses 17 through 25. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away... Audiences of all ages since the release of George Lucas's Star Wars in 1977 have been fascinated with this pop culture phenomenon. The story of Luke Skywalker who finds out that he has the ability to use the Force as he helps the rebellion save the galaxy from the evil Darth Vader and the Galactic Empire to the point to where it becomes, whether you've seen Star Wars or not, you know the phrase, may the Force be with you, right? <clears throat> and yet although as kids, they love to make-believe being able to use the Force, especially my two boys when we have our lightsaber battles. The films are somewhat vague on exactly what the Force is. Is the Force this mystical power or these microscopic midichlorines or just Baby Yoda's magic hands? In the recently released final installment, one of the characters, Finn, explains his idea of the force, that the force for him is an instinct, it's a feeling that he experiences. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if we don't understand what the force is, right? Because it's just part of a fictional story. It's just a, a fun story that's told. The problem is, is that sometimes people think about how the Bible describes faith similar to the ways that we talk about the force. The faith is just, people would think, it's just some type of spiritual power. It's just some sort of religious or experience or engagement. The, the faith is just a feeling that you have. But God's word is clear, not just about the necessity of faith, but the nature of faith. And as we've been studying through Romans, we've seen that we're saved not by keeping the law, not by being spiritual enough or religious enough by our own efforts, but we're saved and made righteous before God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But it's not just any faith that's saved. It's not just any sort of idea of faith or mystical experience or spiritual experience like Luke Skywalker being able to use the force. Scripture is very specific about the type of faith that saves. This is the example that Paul has been giving in this extended discussion on Abraham as we've been looking through in, in Romans chapter four, is that, that this discussion about Abraham, that, he is, that the family of Abraham includes both Jews and Gentiles who are declared righteous, not by keeping the law or not because of any sort of, 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 of ethnic heritage, but simply by having faith like Abraham's faith. That's what saves. But that leaves in an important question that Paul's going to dive into in this next section. If faith alone saves, if faith like Abraham makes us children of Abraham and, and children of God, then what is faith? What's the nature of saving faith? What does it look like to have faith like Abraham? And importantly for us, how do I know if I have that sort of saving faith like Abraham? This is what Paul continues to unpack in these next verses, in verses 17 through 25, as he so- shows that it's not just any conception of faith that makes one a child of Abraham, but he gives a specific description of Abraham's faith that provides for us the example of this true biblical saving faith. So, so let's look at how Paul describes Abraham's faith. First of all, Paul talks about the object of Abraham's faith. Look at verse 17 with me. Where Paul continues by saying, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So here's the difficulty. that As you look at Romans 4, it's this one big argument, and we're jumping right into the middle of the argument. We're actually jumping right into the middle of the sentence. Paul's explaining here that Abraham is the spiritual father of both Jews and Gentiles because salvation's not based on heritage, it's not based on obedience to the law, but salvation is, is based and being declared right before God, it's based purely on having faith in Jesus Christ, faith like Abraham. That's why Paul quotes Genesis 17, verse 5 here, that Abraham is the father of many nations, not just physically through, through Ishmael and through Isaac, but also he's the father spiritually of all who had have faith, like his faith. And then Paul starts to shift the topic here to answer that question of what is Abraham's faith? What does that look like? Now, the grammar and the logic of this section is kind of difficult if you look at this verse. So try to track with me here. After that quote from Genesis 17, most Bibles, like what I read from the ESV, give this formal translation. It's a prepositional phrase that Paul uses, in the presence of God. But what does that mean? You can't just say, in the presence of God. That makes no sense without some other phrase that that's describing. You have to ask, what is in the presence of God? Is he talking about the quote he just gave? That God made you a father in the presence of God? Maybe. But it makes more sense that Paul's actually continuing his argument before the quote. That before the quote, he's talking about how Abraham is, is, the, fa- is, is the father of all who would have faith like him. So if certain Bibles like the Christian Standard Bible or the NIV translation, they're going to connect the dots for us here. And they, they show us that, he's con- that Paul's continuous argument from before about how Abraham is the father of everyone who has faith like Abraham. So Paul continues here, the NIV would say, saying, he is our father before God. Or Abraham is our father in the sight of God in whom Abraham believed. Paul's shifting the focus from Abraham's universal fatherhood to the particular faith that Abraham had as the father of all who have a similar faith. And look what Paul says about this faith abraham has look at look at the rest of verse 17 so verse 17 is about abraham's faith but it's not really about abraham at all you guys see that the whole rest of the verse talks about abraham's faith but it's not about abraham the rest of the verse the focus is on who it's on god you guys see that in the text there here's the point abraham's faith this example of saving faith is entirely god-centered Faith is not about an attitude you have or a feeling you have or a personal conviction you have. Biblical faith, saving faith, is not first and foremost about you. Saving faith is first and foremost about someone else, about focusing on the God of the universe. You see, sometimes people talk about faith like they're referring to, as I said, some type of spirituality or maybe it's some sort of positivity and, and hoping that, that good things are just going to happen to me or good things are just going to happen in life. That's what faith is. I think about one of the most famous lines in sports history. Don, I'm sorry. It's not about baseball. Um, but in the 1980 Winter Olympics, if, if, if you've seen the remakes of the movie or, or maybe remembering watching this, the U.S. hockey team was about to win this impossible match against the USSR juggernaut, right? And, and, and as they're, they're getting closer to the win, Al Michaels, who's, who's commentating on the game, gives one of the most famous lines in all of sports history, right? Do you believe in miracles, he asks. And that's how people often think about faith. Do you believe that these good things can happen? Is it just... Faith is believing in these good things, to having this positivity, believing in miracles. But you see, when you read the Bible, the Bible doesn't primarily talk about faith in miracles. Because biblical faith is not as much about faith in miracles as about faith in the God who does the miraculous. You see, biblical faith is not just any sort of faith. It's not just any sort of belief. It is faith in a particular person and a singular person and the God of the universe. And then again, it's not just about any concept of God, my faith in this God or my faith in this idea of God, but it's faith in the God who's revealed himself to us, as we see in the scriptures. That's what Paul's going to give here. See, Paul goes on to explain that this biblical saving faith is in a particular God who gives life to the dead see that there in verse 17? Throughout the Bible, God has revealed himself, who not only created all things, but has the power to overcome death with his resurrection power. Not only can God give give life to the effects of this dead world, like we see with, with Abraham and Sarah's inability to have children, but God also is the one who demonstrates that he is the true God, the only God, by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the God in whom Abraham believed, the one who can infuse life where there was no life purely by his resurrection power. See, this is different from every other religion and every other philosophy. This is the God who, yes, declares he is the way and the truth and the life, and he demonstrates that, and he proves that, and he backs that up by his resurrection power in raising Christ from the dead. That's how we know that he is the God of the universe. And second, we see that Biblical saving faith is in the God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. I struggled with this phrase. What does Paul mean by this? What does Paul mean by calls into existence the things that don't exist? The way that a lot of Bibles translate this, like the Bible that I read out of the ESV here, it could be a reference to looking backwards to the creation of the world, right? Where God called what didn't exist Um, As a result, those things came into existence. It's looking back to how God created out of nothing. Now, that's true. We see that in Genesis 1. That's an important aspect of God, that God is the creator. But as you look at this, is that what Paul's talking about here? Is that the emphasis of Paul here in this example of Abraham's faith? See, I I think that the New King James or the Net Bible, they translate this a little little bit better because they insert this important word that's there in the Greek text, this word as. And that word as doesn't show a result that God spoke to what was not exist and created as a result, but God is giving a contrast. God is the one who calls things that do not yet exist, even as is, they already do exist. See, Paul's not talking about having faith that God created in the past. Paul's talking about that Abraham had faith in what God was going to do in fulfilling his promises in the future. God, he had faith that God had already declared this and as if it had already been done, even though it had not yet been done yet. Faith that God is sovereign. Faith that God fulfills his promises. That fits with the Abraham story, doesn't it? Abraham's trust in God wasn't as much as what he had done in creation more what God would do in calling his descendants into existence even though they didn't exist yet. Abraham couldn't see it. He couldn't prove it. But he knew this God who is sovereign and faithful has promised it. And so he knows it will be true. See, all of this is Paul's point is that faith is not just a feeling. Faith is not just a sense of optimism. Faith is in a person. Particularly biblical faith is in the person of God who brings life from the dead and sovereignly and faithfully keeps his promises. That's what faith is. Faith is God-centered. Saving faith is centered on the person and promises of the God who reveals himself to us in the scriptures. Th- that, means that, when we, oops, sorry, that means that when we hear these other ideas of faith, we need to recognize that is not the same thing the Bible talks about. Saving faith is not just an attitude or action of just believing something or, or having faith for the sake of having faith. It's less about the action and more about the object of that faith. Saving faith is not about the unknown. So we hear these things of just having blind faith or a, taking a leap of faith. And you just, we just don't know, so we're just going to have to take a leap. It's not really as much about the unknown as much about the known. You see that, what Paul's saying? Paul's saying it's not that Abraham had no idea about anything and he's just taking a leap of faith. He's saying, no, Abraham did know something. He knew who his God was. And because of that, he was able to take those leaps. See, saving faith its not about the unknown as much as it is about the known of who God is. Faith is not about your feelings. Faith is not about your visualization of yourself as happy and then making it to be. Faith is not about you primarily. Faith is centered on the object of God and what he is going to do. Faith is not about believing that your job's going to get better or that your marriage is going to get better or that your life is going to get better. Biblical faith is not primarily about just our circumstances. Faith is, is about God's character, our focus on him. It's about God and how he's revealed himself in his word. And as we focus on God's character and God's word, that guides our faith and transforms and recalibrates our understanding of our circumstances as we would seek for his sovereign will and his sovereign purposes. See, see, we need to realize that's not how people talk about faith. That's not how our culture talks about faith. That's, that's not how many people who call themselves Christians will talk about faith. See, just because we hear this language of faith and spirituality, that doesn't mean we're all talking about the same thing. There's a lot of things that are very spiritual that are not biblical. Biblical. There are many people who would love to talk about spiritual things, would love to talk about vague notions of faith, but that's not the type of faith Paul's talking about. He's talking about a specific faith, a biblical faith, and a God who's clearly revealed himself in scripture. So just because your friend likes to talk about spiritual things or likes to talk about faith, that doesn't mean that you're talking about the same thing. Just because you're watching a movie that has spiritual notions of faith, if that is not centered on the person of God as revealed in Scripture, that's not the same thing. So Paul shows us that the object of saving faith is God. But he continues on. He also shows us the character of Abraham's faith. Look at verses 18 and 19 with me. Paul says, "...in hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations." And uh, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So Paul's getting getting more specific here as he's describing this faith, that this biblical faith continues to believe, continues to hope, continues on even in the face of considerable difficulties. See, that's what he talks about when he says that Abraham believed in hope Against hope. Right? But Abraham was believing in God's promise that he would be the father of many nations. He was placing his hope in God to fulfill that, even against hope. Or as the New Living Translation would would help explain that, even when there was no reason to actually have hope. You see, Abraham was fully aware of all of his circumstances. He he wasn't blind to his circumstances. He didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't say, I I don't have to think about those things. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to be like Pollyanna and everything's going to turn out okay. He fully considered his circumstance. He fully considered the impossibilities of God's promise. He considered his own body, which Paul says was as good as dead. That's nice, Paul. Thanks there. That's a wonderful thing to say about him. And basically, Paul's saying, listen, he's 100 years old. He's well past the age for, bearing any human, for a human-bearing children. He also fully considered the barrenness and deadness of his wife Sarah's womb, that she was no longer able to bear children. Now, I remember I was, uh, when I was a youth pastor here, I was studying Genesis with some junior hires, and I was talking about this, and I kept calling Abraham, Grandpa Abraham. And one of them said, wait, wait a minute, though. Don't people live longer in the Old Testament? I mean, was 100 years really that old? I mean, that's pretty bright for a 7th grader, right? And I said, that's a really good point. Now, you do see that the ages of people, how they lived, was shortened after the fall. But more importantly, when you look at Romans here, it, the Bible calls Abraham old. I'm not calling Abraham old. Paul's calling Abraham old. In fact, Paul is describing Abraham and Sarah as so old, he's using these images of death, right? I mean, imagine that birthday card. Congratulations. You're a hundred. Your body's pretty much dead. <laughs> right? I mean, that's what Paul's saying here. But here's the point in all that. Abraham wasn't naive. Right? Abraham wasn't this guy who, ah, oh, I'm not gonna think about the bad things in life, I'm not gonna think about the difficulties. I'm just gonna put on rose-colored glasses. He didn't ignore the reality of the situation, he didn't sugarcoat the obstacles. He fully considered every difficulty he faced. He knew that from a human standpoint, there was no hope he and Sarah would ever, ever, ever bear any children. He knew that they had no ability in themselves, not even slightly, to make this happen. He fully considered all the facts. He considered all the impossibilities, and yet none of it caused him to weaken in faith. Though his body was getting weaker, his faith was getting stronger as his hope was placed fully in God despite the impossible circumstances he was in. And then furthermore, look at this continued description there starting in verse 20 where Paul continues on to say, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Wow. Wow. Here's the problem. Is that really true? Paul says that Abraham didn't waver. But I don't know if you remember the stories out of Genesis. I remember the stories out of Genesis. And it sure seemed like Abraham kind of wavered. Right? I mean, what about Genesis 16 when Abraham saw that Sarah wasn't getting the job done? She wasn't bearing children. So he had a child with his wife's servant instead. I mean, I don't know how you describe it. I think wavering would be generous there, right? (laughs) Or, Or how about when God talks to Abraham in Genesis 17, God tells him again that Sarah would have a son, and Abraham literally falls on his face and laughs, right? God comes and talks to him, gives him his promise, and Abraham falls down and laughs at God right? He's literally saying, ha, that's funny, God. That's a good one. You almost got me there. I mean, little wavering, a little bit, right? So what does Paul mean here? What does Paul mean that, that no unbelief made Abraham waver? Paul knew the Old Testament better than we know the Old Testament. So what does that mean? Clearly, Paul's not saying that Abraham never doubted He's never saying that Abraham never strayed or never struggled. Of course, Abraham had momentary doubts. But the point is that when you look at Abraham's life as a whole, these doubts were never more than momentary. These doubts were always overcome by him running to God, by his faith in God and God's promises. Abraham shows us that saving faith does not mean perfect faith at every moment. But that saving faith shows this basic pattern of unwaveringness, of perseverance, of persistence through those obstacles and through the doubts that we have. My friends, this is a great comfort for us. I know it is for me. Having faith like Abraham doesn't mean that we're never going to doubt, we're never going to struggle, we're never going to waver, we're never going to stray. This is going to happen to us just like it did to Abraham. The question is not if you struggle. The the, the question is when you struggle, when you doubt, where do you turn to? Are you using your circumstances as you struggle with them as an opportunity to turn away from God to trust in yourself? Or are you seeing those as an opportunity to turn to God Because even though your circumstances may put you in a fog that you just can't understand, you do know one thing of who God is, and you're going to anchor your faith and your trust there. You, You see, every time Abraham's faith was challenged, every time he started to give in to doubt and despair, he persisted. He fell down and he got right back up. He turned to God in faith, and that caused his faith to grow stronger and stronger every time he did that. Just like you grow stronger physically when your muscles are broken down and then built back up again so that you can carry greater weight or engage in greater activity, Abraham's example shows us that we grow stronger in faith in the same way. As we contemplate, as we look fully square in the eye the difficulties that we're facing. And we struggle with them, but we know who our God is. We know what he's promised, and we turn to him because of his trustworthiness. Every time we do that, our faith grows as we find our dependence and our delight as God is our Lord and our Savior and our treasure. Our faith grows and our God is glorified. And then look at the results of such faith. Look at verse 22, where Paul says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. This, this is the example of the faith that's counted as righteousness. Not just any faith. Not just some idea of faith or belief, but genuine faith like Abraham that perseveres in trusting God despite the circumstances. That type of faith that finds its dependence and its delight in God, that faith, Paul says, is the faith that saves. Not just for Abraham, but all of Abraham's spiritual children who demonstrate this similar unwavering faith in God and his saving promises in Jesus Christ. You see, that's Paul's point here, that saving faith we see is unwavering. That faith perseveres, faith, faith grows despite obstacles, despite doubts, despite difficulties. And so then we need to ask ourselves, if Paul was here, he would ask us the question, what about us? When we face our obstacles, when we face our difficulties, when we face our doubts, what is our response? Are you basing your faith and your hope just what you can see in your circumstances or on the basis of who God has revealed himself to be in his word? When you struggle and you suffer with your job or with your family or you struggle with things in the church, do you see that as an opportunity where you then can get to take control or an opportunity of being able to exercise greater faith as you trust in God? It it makes me think of the passage that Don read from Habakkuk 3 this morning. It's the passage Amanda and I chose for our, our wedding scripture. Because that's what sometimes the circumstances are like, is Habakkuk 3. Sometimes life is where the fig tree doesn't blossom. And there's no fruit in the vines. Sometimes life means there's no produce of the olive and where the the fields yield no food. Sometimes life is where the flock is cut off from the fold and there's no herd in the stalls. That's what life's like sometimes, right? Where you fully contemplate the difficulties that you're surrounded with. But the question is, how will we respond to that? And faith would declare with Habakkuk, yet... Yet, even though I know every aspect of what's difficult, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in who God is, the God of my salvation. But we have to remember that that's difficult, right? That, that we don't get to that place because I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm going to have the self-determination that I can persevere in faith by myself. See, we need to remember that Paul is writing this as an encouragement to a church to a local and visible body of Christ covenanted together through membership and commitment to one another as a body with many members to love one another and to help each other persevere. We were never meant to try to persevere on our own. We need to be linked with one another to help us persevere like this. To paraphrase author and pastor Paul Tripp, our perseverance and our growth in faith is not something that comes from our own self-determination. Our perseverance and our growth in faith is a community project. When we're looking at the impossibilities of our circumstances, we need those, as Hebrews 10 says, that we've committed to. I've committed to them and they've committed to me, that we are going to encourage one another, that we are going to gather regularly together as part of this visible and local body of Christ. And they're, we're going to stir each other up to love and good, need, good deeds. And they're going to help us hold fast to our confession of our hope without wavering. That's how it's done, Hebrews says. When we're struggling with doubt, we need those who are committed to us and we're committed to them in the covenant community of the church so that as Galatians 6 says, they can help us carry our burdens. See, biblical faith perseveres not out of one's self-determination, but because as Ecclesiastes 4 says, though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him and a three-fold cord is not quickly broken. We need to remember that faith perseveres because we're anchored and supported by God's covenant community in the church, his body, his people. So then finally, let's look at how Paul concludes this example of of, of Abraham's faith. Look at the purpose of Abraham's faith. Look at how he concludes in verses 23 through 25. Paul says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. And we be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is interesting here. According to Paul, do you see the significance of what Abraham's story in Genesis is? This is not just a Bible story. This is not just a historical curiosity the account of Abraham was recorded and preserved with a divine purpose and that purpose is for those in the church of Rome and for those in the church today we need to realize that this is how Paul read his bible this is the way that God wants us to read our bibles that this this book that we read is not just a book of spiritual knowledge it's not just a book of history Those things are true, but it's so much more. This is God's revelation of himself and is true that's written for you and written to you and written with applications about you. How we need to remember that when we're struggling with with indifference with our devotional Bible reading, don't we? We can struggle with that. One more day, oh, I gotta gotta find time to, to read my Bible today. But how, how, can indi- how can we be indifferent when we recognize, as Paul said, that this was written for us? This was given by God to us for our good, for our comfort, for our holiness, for our sake. Oh, how we need to remember this when we struggle with apathy towards the preaching of the word on Sunday mornings. You see, since the example of, of the church in Scripture, in this early church in Scripture, the focus of the gathering church was the preaching of the word. This is what was recovered by the reformers. This is what we practice today. Why? Because the word of God is God's revelation of himself. This is what God has revealed about himself. It is inspired for our sake to make us complete, equipped for every good work and life and godliness. So, so we prepare for the preaching of the word. We value the preaching of the word. We, we go to bed at a decent time on Saturday morning so we can be mentally alert for the preaching of the word on Sunday, on the Lord's day, as we come and we study God's word together. Because it wasn't written for Abraham's sake, and it wasn't written for Paul's sake. It was revealed and inspired and preserved by God, Paul says, for our sake, for our good, for our sanctification. That's God's revelation of himself to us. That's why the focus of our worship service is on the study of God's word. And notice, though, that Paul, when he applies this to himself, or applies this to the church, he doesn't just say, oh, whatever the Bible says about Abraham, we can just take that and apply it to us. Paul's being careful here. He's applying the Old Testament in context. He's saying, listen, there are similarities to Abraham, but there's also differences to Abraham here. See, throughout Romans 4, Paul has shown that the Old Testament taught that Abraham would be the father of many nations, right? Many peoples. That's what the Old Testament said and taught, that we are the spiritual children of Abraham. So Paul's saying that if Abraham was counted righteous by his faith in God and his promises, then it follows that same context in the Old Testament that we are, as Abraham's spiritual children, are counted righteous by our faith and the fulfillment of those promises God made to Abraham and Jesus Christ. You see, our faith is similar to Abraham. It's faith in a God who revealed himself as sovereign and, re- and a resurrecting God. But our faith is different than Abraham. Because while Abraham and those living before the cross, they were looking to the, what God would do in the future to fulfill those promises. To just this God who would fulfill those promises one day, there's a difference with us living today. Where we have faith in what God has already fulfilled. All these promises and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham. See that now that Jesus the Messiah has come to fulfill these promises, salvation is not just in this God who will, who is a resurrecting God and a sovereign God and will one day fulfill his promises. Because God already has fulfilled these promises that we see that salvation is only now counted to those who believe in Jesus to whom fulfilled these promises, the Jesus who died for our sin and was raised for our justification. And so Paul concludes by focusing on Jesus. He's quoting here in these last verses probably part of a hymn that was sung in the early church to reflect on, on, on the Lord Jesus we place our faith in, that the Lord Jesus was delivered and was raised, Interesting, that word was means that there is another primary actor who is doing these things, right? The implication here is that if we ask the question, who killed Jesus? Who delivered Jesus unto death? Paul's saying here it wasn't the Jews, it wasn't Pilate and the Romans, but it was God the Father who delivered God the Son to death. Why? Paul's basically quoting Isaiah 53 here to say that God the Father delivered and crushed God the Son on the cross for you and for me in our place as our substitute for our sin. And then God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Again, Paul says, for us, for our justification. That's a tough one. What does that mean? We understand that Jesus died for our sin. What does it mean that Jesus was raised for our justification? I think the best explanation of this is New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner, where he writes in his commentary to say Jesus was raised for or because of our justification is to say that his resurrection, get this, authenticates and confirms that our justification has been secured. You see, what Paul's saying here is, what is our proof What's our confirmation? What's our guarantee that we can know with 100% certainty that our sins are paid for? That on the last day, when I stand before God, I haven't been there yet, neither of you, but on that last day when we stand before God, we know what the verdict's gonna be. How do we know with 100% certainty? That he's gonna declare us right before himself and bring us in his kingdom. What does God give as our confirmation? Paul says, he rose Jesus from the dead. That's what authenticates it. That's an absolute fact with both incredible biblical and historical evidence that authenticates and confirms that our justification has been secured. That's what it means that Jesus is raised for our justification. I think that's the best explanation. You see, the point here is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises made to Abraham, which means that the focus of those who have biblical faith, our faith today, is found purely in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. If you're visiting with us this morning and you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, we want to say welcome. We are so glad that you've joined us here this morning. The God who created the universe and created you, he loves you. And he has revealed himself to you through his revelation in his word so that we're not left with any sort of speculation of what three, four guys think. Here's what I think God is like. God has revealed himself to you so you can know him. However, it's clear from our lives that we have rejected God as he's revealed himself to us. We've rejected this good and sovereign God. We've shamed God by worshiping his creation instead of worshiping him. We've rebelled against God by living for our own glory as if we are God and he is not. And this shameful act of rebellion is what the Bible calls sin. And because of this sin, we can never be right before God. We can never earn our salvation. We can never earn that right status. We cannot save ourselves. But God loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to die on a cross in our place as our substitute for our sin, bearing the punishment we deserve for our sin so that he could credit to us Christ's righteous life. And he raised Jesus from the dead to demonstrate the forgiveness that we can have in Jesus. And this is a gift purely by grace. It's a free gift. If you would return from your sin, that's what the Bible talks about, repentance. Turn from, away from your sin as you turn to Christ in faith as Savior and Lord and treasure. If, if you've not done that and you want to know how you can have your sin forgiven, how you can be reconciled into this right relationship with God, how you can know you can, that, 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 that heaven is yours forever, we would love to tell you more. We don't want to force anyone on anything, but we want you to understand what, what God has revealed. We want to answer your questions. So if you have questions, if you want to know more, please don't leave this morning without asking someone. Ask the person who brought you. Ask any member of our church. I'll be at the back of the sanctuary afterwards. I'd love to answer your questions. We'd love to tell you more about how you could experience this forgiveness and eternal life through Jesus Christ. You know, when George Lucas created Star Wars, according to his own statements he's given in interviews, he intentionally made this idea of the force to be very vague and undefined. Lucas wanted the idea of this spiritual force without actually trying to nail it down to any specific notion of God or notion of spirituality or notion of religion. He's trying to avoid any sign of specifics of that spirituality. But although that idea made Star Wars an interesting story, it proves that that story can be no more than a fictional story, right? Because all this is is a speculation made up in George Lucas' mind and then left to be furthered by speculations of the minds of his audiences. See, that means that all this is is a speculation. This idea of a force is just a speculation. It's just plain make-believe. However, what we've studied this morning is not man's speculation, but God's revelation. God's revealed salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just any speculation of here's what I think faith is and here's what you think faith is. But Paul has anchored us that faith is not just a spiritual experience. Faith is not just an internal feeling. Faith is biblical faith modeled and exemplified by Abraham. It's a particular faith in the sovereign and resurrecting God revealed in Scripture. It's a particular faith that perseveres and grows despite obstacles and difficulties. It's a particular faith that is in Jesus Christ who died for our sin and was raised for our justification. That's what it means to have faith like Abraham. That is true saving faith that ga- where God would count a status of righteousness to all, offered to all who would have this faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you know us. You know us so well and you know how we tend to get moved along and drift along with the different speculations of our own minds, much less the speculations of of, of man and our culture. So we know, we thank you that you have revealed yourself and you've revealed yourself clearly and what we need to know about you for life and for godliness, especially what we need to know about you for salvation. We thank you that you've given us this example of faith and you've you've, you've re-emphasized it through Paul so that, that, that that can be an encouragement to us as we would continue to grow in faith. Help us, Lord, to, to focus on, on the true example of faith that you've given, not the notions that, we, that, that people may hold as we focus on you as the object of our faith, as we persist in our, and grow in our trust greater and greater in you and as we rejoice as our faith is centered in that you fulfilled all the promises made to Abraham and to us in Jesus Christ. And so we would give you all glory and honor and praise to you, our great God, who is mighty to save. In Jesus' name, amen.